Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, June 16, 2013. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator for this morning's presentation entitled, We Call This Plain Insanity. Step two of our program states, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Now, if we've got to be restored to sanity, then that indicates we must be insane. Here to speak with us concerning this greater aspect of our disease, the obsession of the mind, is Joe, a recovered compulsive overeater from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Joe, good morning to you. Good morning, Leah, and good morning, A Vision for You. My name is Joe. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater, and I've been asked to talk this morning about, we call this plain insanity, about the nature of the mental obsession. And so I want to take you back to some vivid memories that I have. I was 12 years old, and I was in the seventh grade science class, and I remember it being springtime, and I was looking out the window, and I said to myself, I'm only going to have a piece of fruit when I get home from school. I'm thinking seven hours ahead of what I plan to do with food. I wasn't able to think about other things, like when I get home from school, I'm going to go outside and play. Or when I get home from school, I'm going to call up a friend and see if she can come over. Those would have been normal, healthy thoughts for a 12-year-old. Instead, I was making a resolution about what I was going to eat because my overeating was bothering me enough to, to try to do something about it. Um, when I got home from school, I could not stick to this resolution ever, not one time. I would ultimately go for something more junky, and I would feel bad because I didn't stick to my resolution, which seemed so solid earlier in the day. I really meant it when I said that to myself in the morning, and yet I couldn't stick to that. My thinking was centered on food. When I was in high school, I would stay up on school nights determined to wait out the rest of the family so that I could eat whatever I wanted in secrecy. I didn't want anyone to see what I was doing because the only way to get release was to eat what I wanted with abandon with no witnesses. Now, this was a chore in a family of six people, but I had fierce determination. I remember sitting at the kitchen table into the evening, pretending to do my homework and saying to myself, I will outlast you, you other family members who think you're going to stay up later than me. You can forget about it. I'm going to win. And I remember when that last person had finally gone upstairs. I had to wait several minutes to make sure they were going to stay upstairs and not come back downstairs because they had forgotten something. Uh, and when I was sure that everyone was settled and I was safe from any witnesses, I dove in and raided the refrigerator and cupboard. My thinking was centered on food. As an older teenager, I planned trips to stores, not just any stores. These were stores that had food items of sugar, flour, and fat that were small enough and light enough for me to shoplift. I knew where the items were in the stores. I would walk into the store acting like I was coming in to buy something so that no one would be suspicious. 
when I got to the section of the store I was aiming for, I would carefully, slowly look around, check to see if other customers or store employees could see me. I checked the security mirrors to make sure I was not visible in those mirrors. I would take a package, carefully place it either in my purse or my pocket or a school folder, and slowly make my way out of the store, get far enough away from the store to make sure I was in the all clear, and then consume what I had stolen. Now, I felt odd doing this. I had come from an honest family, yet my thinking was being twisted into a knot so that I could get my fix. My thinking was centered on food. Starting in high school and continuing through college, I ate in bathroom stalls. Talk about gross. I would take a package of food, usually a baked good, often something I had purchased from a vending machine or a convenience store. I would go into the bathroom hoping there would be an empty stall and hoping that the entire bathroom would be empty. I remember being in a stall and having my package in my hand, but being so angry whenever there was someone in the stall next to me, because that meant I had to wait to get my food inside my body. I had to wait for the experience of having that food take the edge off. I believed that if I opened the package while the person was in the next stall, they would know what I was doing. They would know that I was eating in there. And that felt very humiliating to me. And even though we might be strangers, or maybe they didn't see my face coming into the bathroom, the thought that they would know what I was doing was unbearable. I had to have complete secrecy, neither being seen nor heard by anyone else, for me to feel free to do my eating in the way I wanted to eat and the way I needed to eat. My thinking was obsessively centered on food. My first job out of college, I worked Monday through Saturday at noon. So Saturday at noon was like my Friday night. Ah, I'm done working for the week, relief, anticipation. I would think ahead. I'm going to go to the grocery store after work to get all my good stuff. So after work, I would go to the grocery store and get all my favorite foods, knowing how I was going to use those foods later on. I would go home, put the refrigerated items in the refrigerator, and the non-refrigerated items I would throw on the couch, knowing in my mind they would be there for me at the moment I needed them later on. Then I would take a nap because I had been up since 5 a.m., and I would wake up at about 4 in the afternoon and know immediately what I was going to do. I knew in my mind how I was going to spend my evening. I got up, started in on the food, and ate in front of the TV for the next several hours, and this became my binge night. Saturday night was pretty much reserved in my mind for this happening. My mind was becoming even more fixated on food. In my late 20s, I had an early morning job, and I would stop at a convenience store on my way in to get my version of breakfast, which had to include an item that had sugar, flour, and fat in it. I only had to have one or maybe two of these things, but in my mind, I had to have them. When I got off work at about 1 p.m., I would often stop at a convenience store to get other foods. I had made a decision in my mind that I would do this and I did. My thinking continued to be focused on food. As my addiction got worse, 
My thoughts about food took up more and more time and became more intense. Thoughts like, I have to have three desserts. One dessert isn't going to do it anymore. Two desserts aren't going to do it anymore. I have to dig this food out of this garbage bag right now. I have to weigh out a pound of candy to take it to the movies. And then when I get to the movies, I have to have the biggest box of popcorn that they've got. I have to get my money together, get my shoes on, go out the door, and drive to the grocery store at 10 or 11 at night because I believed in my mind that this was the only way to take the edge off. I have to load up on binge foods and take them to work because that's the only way I can get through the workday. I remember sitting in my kitchen one time holding the last piece of a baked good that I had made, and I paused and asked myself, what do I have if I don't have this? And the answer was nothing. I believed in my mind that I had nothing to really stay alive for except this one piece of sugar and flour in my hand. That's what my mind told me. In my 30s, I had a job where we had a vending machine on the first floor and I worked on the second floor. And I believed in my mind that I had to prepare my wallet for when I worked alone on Saturdays so that I would have what I needed to raid that vending machine. And I had to plan because I had a type of job where I had these timed events that I had to be there for. And if I was going to break away from my desk, it had to be during certain times on the clock. So my mind told me that I had to plan and watch the clock so I could get away from the desk when the clock allowed me to and go downstairs to the first floor and buy the sugar and flour, the salt and crunch to feel like I could stay alive that day. My mind told me that for me to be okay, I had to eat. My mind told me that for me to feel stable, I had to eat. My mind told me that for me to avoid a screaming fit of anxiety that would be unbearable, I had to eat. So I followed my mind. My mind was leading me. My mind told me what to do, and I followed that voice. Now, other parts of my mind, the healthier, I suppose you could call it, parts of my mind, would try to speak up. Joe, you're obese. You're at risk of adult-onset diabetes. But the stronger part of my mind said, that doesn't matter. You have to eat. Joe, you're out of breath when you go up the stairs. That doesn't matter. You have to eat. Joe, your face is so stretched out, it feels like it could crack. That doesn't matter. You have to eat. Joe, you have heart disease in your family. You could have a heart attack from this obesity. That doesn't matter. You have to eat. Joe, you're harming your teeth with all the sugar you're eating. That doesn't matter. You have to eat. Joe, your digestive system is working overtime at night because of the binging, and it doesn't get any rest. That doesn't matter. You have to eat. Joe, you can't run. You can't even walk upstairs very easily. That doesn't matter. You have to eat. Joe, remember what your science teacher said in high school about how your spleen had to work so hard when you eat sugar? Don't you feel bad about what you're doing to your spleen? That doesn't matter. You have to eat. But Joe, shut up. You're going to walk over to that cupboard, pull out everything you can get your hands on, and shove it in now. Rip the bags open, break open the box, tear the lid off the container, and shove it down. Open the refrigerator, grab what's in there, smash through the packaging, and rocket it into your mouth. We're not playing games here. We've got some eating to do. Now do it. Check your purse to see if you've got a few dollars. 
you need to stop at the convenience store before you go out to your work assignment. Yes, those things in that cellophane bag, that'll do it now. Put the package into your work bag. That way, you can eat these items in the car on your way to your work assignment. Okay, I'm walking out of the bank. Oh, there's a quarter candy dispenser. Let's remember this in case we're in the neighborhood and we need a quick fix. I've been laid off a job. Don't worry, no matter what happens to you financially, I'll always make sure you have money for your fix. I've got to hurry to get to the movie theater because I have to get there in time to wait in line to get the concessions. Let's see, do I have enough money in my wallet to pay for both the concessions and the movie? I'm at the grocery store. I'm checking out, buying my stuff, and I'm writing a check. Oh, wait, write the check for over the amount so you can get cash back and have that money available to go to a fast food joint later because those fast food joints don't take checks and you have to have cash in order to get your fix later on. Okay, I've just ridden 16 miles on my bike, and that's quite a lot of workout, so I can stop at the Dairy Queen and get the big cone there, then I can stop at the convenience store and load up on a bunch more items, go home, make a big dinner, eat it all, and then settle in front of the TV with all my goodies. And this is all okay because I rode my bike earlier, so that's totally fine. Okay, I'm trying to eat better snack foods. I still want to eat some junky stuff, but, you know, maybe it's, it's, it's healthier. Okay, so I'm at the store. Yes, these chips are better for me than the regular kind. That frozen treat is better than the regular kind. That package of baked items is better than the regular kind. No, don't look at the grams of fat. You might find out it's higher than you think, and then you won't be able to eat them. So just put it in your basket and go, and hurry up. Okay, I'm in the sugar aisle of the grocery store. Hmm, okay, what am I in the mood for? Uh, well, that's that thick chocolatey thing that I like, but that's kind of rich, and I don't want to take up too much of my room and my stomach because... I want variety in my binge, so, okay, so I'll get that other chocolatey thing. That's a lighter type of cake. Okay, so, and then I'll get some ice cream to wash it down, some salty, crunchy stuff to combine it with, and then candy to finish it all off. Okay, when does the store close? I better hurry up, get to the checkout counter. Is my roommate going to be home tonight? If she is going to be home, I won't be able to binge in the living room because she'll see me. Hmm, okay, so I need a plan. I've got to get my fix together, set my TV up in my bedroom so I can have my fix, and the TV in there. Okay, so i got to hurry up. Okay, buy what I need, get home, cook whatever I need, and do this all before she gets home so I won't be seen. What if she's already home? What if she's there with her boyfriend? Why do they have to be at our house? Why can't they ever go to his house? Okay, shut up. Get moving. You don't have much time. I'm at a party. I've got to say hi to the hostess before hitting the food table. Okay, so do that. Okay, that's done. Woohoo, some good party food over at that table. Okay, but darn it. There's so many people standing around right now. Maybe I can wait until there are fewer people around the table. Well, I don't want so many witnesses. I don't want any witnesses, but oh, this is a party. Some people are going to see me. Okay, so what do I do? Okay, don't panic. Just act naturally. Pretend you're not in a hurry. Pretend to be friendly. Just pile the food on your plate. Yes, it's embarrassing, but if you get the embarrassment over with now, you'll have the big pile you need, and you won't have to go back so many times. Living like this was like having an abusive partner living inside my head forcing me to do that which was toxic to my body and my soul. To know intellectually that what I was doing was harmful, but be unable to stand up against this powerful, powerful voice was a form of mental slavery. At my worst, I weighed 254 pounds. I'm 5'4 and a half. 254 pounds is morbid obesity. I checked this out on two of those obesity charts from doctor's offices, which means I was at risk of contracting an obesity-related condition that could kill me. My eating had plagued me for almost 30 years, and yet I could not stop. 
The big book on page 37 says, whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. How can such a lack of proportion of the ability to think straight be called anything else? My thinking was not the thinking of a mentally healthy person. My behavior was not the behavior of a mentally healthy person. Now, I tried helping my mind so that I wouldn't be so tortured. I said in my mind, I'm going to control the eating. I'm going to make a decision that today I'm going to eat reasonably. I'm going to put boundaries around my food. How many times did I try that? Many, many, many times over many, many, many years. It did not remove the mental obsession. Self-knowledge. I tried that. I'm going to seek out in my mind the reasons why I'm overeating. Let's see. What could the reasons be? Hmm. Well, it's because I feel deprived in other areas of my life. And if I take care of those areas, I won't want to eat anymore. I know I'm keeping excess weight on my body on purpose. I'm trying to keep people away from me. And I'm trying to come across as tough. And having excess weight on me, that helps that image. That's why I'm keeping all this weight on me. Those realizations, which were true, had, had, nothing, had no impact on removing the obsession. Therapy. You know, I'm getting some really good therapy. It's changing my consciousness. I'm feeling relieved. I'm getting to the heart of some really serious issues that go back a long way. That should take care of my obsession with food. Therapy had no effect on my obsession with food. These were all sincere attempts to figure out the obsession. I truly believed in my mind that they should work. There was no reason to me why they shouldn't work, and yet they didn't. They had zero impact on my obsession with food. The big book has passage after passage about the exact nature of a mind like mine. In the doctor's opinion, it says they are restless, irritable, and discontented. In the chapter more about alcoholism, it says no person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. Many who are real alcoholics are not going to believe they are in that class. Most of us have believed that if we remained sober for a long stretch, we could thereafter drink normally. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. At a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic, he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. The almost certain consequences that follow taking even a glass of beer do not crowd into the mind to deter us. This is the hopeless condition of an addict like me. I can't stop the thoughts from coming, and I can't fight them off once they're there. They control me. I'm at their mercy I'm powerless. And yet, here I am this morning talking to you 
recovered. I am a recovered compulsive overeater. I have recovered from this condition. How did that happen? In the doctor's opinion, it says, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol. In the chapter more about alcoholism, it says the delusion that we are like other people or presently may be has to be smashed. If we are planning to stop drinking, there must be no reservation nor any lurking notion that someday we will be immune to alcohol and that his defense must come from a higher power. It says we had to face the fact that we must find a spiritual basis of life or else, that we had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves, and that that's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself which will solve your problem. Because what is my problem? It's my powerlessness over my mental obsession. Resolving the core fundamental issue is not about trying to think my way out of my thinking problem. Instead, what I have had to do is follow the directions in the big book, which have me surrender my way out of my thinking problem. I have had to give myself over to a radically different way of thinking, a way of thinking that is offered to me by the 12 steps. These 12 steps are written in beautiful clarity and order in the big book. In the appendix in the back of the book called Spiritual Experience, it talks about a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. A personality change, I mean, what is composed of a personality except a cluster of types of thinking which then lead to types of behavior? I've heard many times on this meeting, all action is born in thought. My actions are going to reflect the way that I think. So my behavior in recovery is going to reflect my recovery thinking, as opposed to my behavior in active addiction, which reflected my addict way of thinking. Yes, I have an allergy of the body, and yes, I have to be completely abstinent from all my binge foods and all excess volume of food. But that is to clear a channel for the real and enduring work of this program, which is the steps, the 12 steps as they are written in the big book in order. It's not my program. It's the program, and it's in the big book. And this is why abstinence is not an answer to the problem of compulsive overeating. Abstinence is never my goal. Abstinence is the prerequisite for my system to be available for the spiritual solution that is the experience that I have in working the steps. I am a compulsive overeater, and therefore I'm at great risk of going back into the food. The odds of experiencing long-term recovery in OA are very low. People like that are very few and far between. So the odds are not in my favor. I know what I'm up against, and I take this addiction very seriously. So I take my recovery very seriously. I came for sobriety 
I came because I couldn't stop overeating. I was very miserable. I was in hopelessness and helplessness and despair. I thought it was about the food. What I did not know then and what I know now is that it's about my way of thinking. And because I have accepted my mental condition and then taken the steps that follow from that acceptance, which is following the program in the big book, I have experienced a 120-pound weight loss and I'm at a healthy weight. I don't worry about my health. I get in and out of bed and run when I'm in a hurry. I can go rollerblading around the lake. I can go up and down 40 stairs in my building many times each day. My physical life is dramatically better because I accepted my mental condition. I have a new career today because I accepted my mental condition. Now, who would have thought that? I am doing a type of work and working at a type of organization that I never thought possible for myself when I was in that mental obsession. Um, I'm getting involved politically in a way that's very meaningful to me. Um, My interactions with family members are far more effective. Most importantly, I have been freed in my mind from the torture I was living in. The abusive partner has been silenced, and the better part of me, the best part of me, has been able to come to the surface and release herself out into the world. The big book says, if you are as seriously alcoholic as we were, we believe there is no middle-of-the-road solution. I have fully accepted my mental obsession, which means I accept the fact that I will never be normal mentally the way a normal eater is. And I have accepted that it is only through the program in the big book that I am able to live a recovered life. Thank you for letting me share, and I'll pass. Thank you so much, Joe, for your thorough explanation of the greater aspect of our disease, the obsession of the mind. Now we invite those on the line to direct any questions you might have regarding the obsession of the mind or the program of recovery to Joe, and you can do so by pressing star 1 to unmute. Any questions this morning? Good morning. This is Catherine, a compulsive eater from California. Good morning, Catherine. Go right ahead. Um, If uh, Joe would talk about um, uh, abstinence, and if if she doesn't mind, um, on on volume today, I think sometimes the understanding of particular foods is very clear. Could she address the understanding of, of amounts? Thank you. Well, that begins with honesty. So that's a mental practice. And that's what we have to practice. You know, if you're if you're an addict like me and you probably are, um you got to get honest about what you've been doing with volume. And then you apply that to helping yourself, you know, with a sponsor, etc., to construct a food plan that doesn't allow for the kinds of volume that trigger you. Thank you, Joe, for that. Thank you, Catherine, for the question. 
We always recommend uh, seeking the counsel and guidance of a recovered compulsive overeater and a nutritionist in these matters. So we wish you luck with that. Any other questions this morning regarding obsession of the mind, program of the of recovery? Press star one to unmute. Hi, this is Kathy in Boston. Hey, yeah. Kathy. Good morning. Go Thank ahead. Thanks, Leah. And thank you, Joe. It was really, really good to hear you this morning. And <clears throat> I identify a lot with many aspects of your story and, and thought it would be really helpful to me and perhaps others if you could say more about the experience that you had as you um, incorporated the steps into your life. Um, at what point did you know that this rearrangement was occurring and that um, you were finding and establishing a new way of life? If you could share more about that, I'd really appreciate it. Mm. Well, it was a process. I, I, And in my process, there were moments that were moments of clarity. I remember coming home from a meeting one time where I was very struck by the recovery that I saw there. And the message that was carried included taking some specific actions that at first seemed odd to me. And I was taking it in. It was kind of like something, this rapid-fire message um, that was being communicated. I had to digest it a little bit. And I remember sitting in my living room at night with the moonlight coming in, uh, taking in this message that I had witnessed. And one of the recommendations... Uh, was that we give up uh, another kind of mood-altering drug, alcohol, as part of our uh, abstinence. And I'm not an alcoholic, and I had three bottles of wine in my refrigerator. Uh, I'd always been a very light drinker, actually. These bottles had been sitting there for, I don't know, weeks or something. And I remember something, uh, something switched in my mind. As I was sitting in the living room, it just, it just switched. I got up, I went to the refrigerator, pulled the bottles of wine out, and I dumped them out into the sink. It was a leap of faith. There was no intelligence behind it. It was just my willingness to give over to that. That was an example of a moment of clarity where I had an experience of stopping the arguing. The debate had left my mind in that moment, and I just took action. And I've had a number of experiences like that in program where I, I stopped arguing, I stopped debating, and I just followed the recommendations of someone who clearly was recovered, and I was not. So recovery is a process. It's not a destination. Recovery is not finite. There's movability within it. And at the same time, I have to remember 
that my problem, you know, this this mental obsession that we talk about over food, that goes along with a lot of other kinds of thinking. It goes along with argumentation, debate, um, excessive philosophizing, excessive amounts of opinions, thinking that I'm right all the time, thinking that I have to be in charge. All, all, all of that kind of thinking goes along with the obsession for food. So if I'm going to have recovery, I have to be willing to surrender those other kinds of thinking as well. So in any one of our lives, the particular way that our recovery manifests itself is going to be unique because we're each unique people. And yet the principles upon which we are going to recover really are common principles. Um, Surrender, willingness, persistence, humility, tolerance, patience. And those those are ways of thinking that we first have to start practicing within the fellowship itself, with our sponsors, with the other people we're at meetings with, with our recovery network. You know, that's the laboratory where we learn about those kinds of thinking, and then we can take it out into the world to our other, you know, our relationships, our families, our work lives, et cetera. So that would be my answer. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy, for the question. Anyone else? Questions for Joe related to the obsession of the mind? Hi, I'm Marianne. Can I ask you a question? Yes, of course. Go ahead. Thank you. Thank you so much for the qualification. It was really, really interesting to listen to. Um, I'm just, uh, I'm just curious about um, like restricting and food plan. Um, I haven't heard that many recovered um, compulsive overeaters who works with with restriction and food plan because it's more like uh, compulsive uh, behaviors around food. If you have any reflections upon. Uh, that I would I would love to hear that. Thank you so much. Well, compulsive overeating has two components to it: an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind. Now, if someone can resolve their eating by just resolving eating behaviors, they're not a compulsive overeater and they don't belong in this fellowship. If someone's only problem is that they that they eat standing up, or that they eat while driving, or that they eat in the dark. And all they have to do is sit at a table when they're eating or eat when they're not driving or eat in the light. They're not a compulsive overeater because that means they don't have the allergy of the body. So I don't believe anyone who comes into this fellowship and says they're a compulsive overeater only has uh, eating behavior issues. They have an allergy of the body, which means that there are foods that when they ingest them, even in small amounts, trigger a physical response. Therefore, there are foods that we have to abstain from entirely. So we talk about, you know, the way that we think. That's what today's session is about, the way that we're thinking. And we have to get honest with ourselves. We first have to get honest with ourselves about what we're doing with food, what we've been eating, how much we're, we're eating. Um, food behaviors, yes, that may be an issue. And there may be food behaviors that any of us are going to have to abstain from. But that's part of a package of actions that we're going to have to do to follow an abstinent food plan. That'd be my answer, Marianne. 
Thank you. Anyone else? Hi, this is Sheila from New York. May I have a question? Of course, Sheila, go ahead. Good morning. Thank you very much for your qualification and sharing your journey with us. My question this morning is around the psychic shift. Was there a point in your process when you were having recovery, did you notice or identify that shift in the psyche with the mental obsession? Did the two play a role or was it one preceded the other? Thank you. Um, I remember when things started to really take a major shift, that's when I was in step nine. Um, Things changed for me when I was in my step nine that I could never have anticipated. It was really big. Um, And it didn't happen in one second, but that process was, that was enormous. Um, I started feeling like a different person when I was doing my amends. I started feeling free in a way I hadn't felt free in a really, 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 since I was a little kid, since I was a little child, like four or five. And I was in my late 30s when I was doing my amends. Um, And I not only felt free because I was getting free of these very old burdens. I felt a deeper sense of connection to the world itself. I felt like I belonged here in a way that I hadn't felt like I belonged here. And I realized in doing my amends that I have the right to get free of these burdens that I do not have to be sent into a form of damnation where I'm going to be living there forever. And I used to think that. And I used to think that about other people as well. You deserve, you know, to be eternally burdened. And in order for me to have that experience, I had to have gone through the first eight steps thoroughly, clearly, honestly. I had to be really squeaky clean with my food. Then I went through the process and the way it is designed to be gone through. And things changed for me in step nine, and they haven't gone back. I mean, I'm not the same person that I was before I went through my step nine. So that was that was a huge turning point for me, um, Sheila. So that'd be my answer. Thank you. Thank you, Sheila, for the question. Who's next? Hi, this is Elaine from Massachusetts. Hi, Elaine. Good morning. Go ahead. Good morning. Um, I just discovered this meeting. This is my first time here and very, very grateful for the share. And I am wondering what recommendations you might have for somebody who is um, uh, trying to come out of relapse and find a sponsor and start uh, start working the 12 steps according to the big book. Mm-hmm. Thank you. 
Well, Elaine, I don't think the suggestions for people coming out of relapse are any different than people who come into the rooms just from binging and they've never been in the rooms. There are two things that any of us have to do to recover from this condition. One, become abstinent. Two, work the steps in the big book. Those are the two requirements. Now, because we have such a powerful addiction, we need to be, I think, selective about how we're going to go about doing that. Uh, You know, we say in our meetings, find someone who has what you want and ask how it was achieved. So one suggestion I would have for you is you have to, first of all, decide what you want. You have to know what you want. It starts with that. And then when you know what you want, you find someone else who has it. If you want to be recovered, then you have to look for someone who's already recovered. And then you ask that person to be your sponsor and show you what she did so that you can be recovered. I think we need to be selective about the meetings that we go to. I would encourage you to shop around in your area for meetings that use the big book where there are people at that meeting uh, who are recovered, who use the language of recovery by saying, I'm recovered. People who have um, a physical recovery, who have a light in their eye, who talk about living a transformed life. Look for meetings that have those people in it. If those meetings don't exist in your area, come to a vision for you. Use that as your meeting. If you are sick and tired of messing around, then you need to become willing to listen to the suggestions of a sponsor that are going to irritate you, inconvenience you, and really piss you off. So if you have a sponsor who's triggering those things in you on a regular basis, great, then you've got the right person. Because I'll just tell you in advance that your ego is going to squirm. Because that's what our egos need to do. Our egos have been in charge and they have been running our lives. And they're making us miserable. And it is time for them to sit down and shut up. But because we're so powerless, we can't make them do that. I always liken it to having a family where there's a teenage kid who's out of control, is abusive and disruptive and stays up late and, you know, uh, cranks their music up loud and is running around the neighborhood breaking windows and is smoking and drinking and the whole family is disrupted by this. And the parents have not done their job in instilling the right kind of discipline in that kid. So now the kid is out of control and it's too late for the parents to try to handle this on their own. So the parents have to go get help. The parents have to go get help from other parents who've gone through the same thing and now they've got some suggestions for what to do. And when the new form of discipline comes into the family and that kid no longer gets to smoke and drink, no longer gets to throw rocks, no longer gets to crank their music and come home late, they got to sit at the table with everyone else and eat their meal, they got to go to bed at a decent hour, they got to do their homework, 
you know, they're going to ship up. They're going to, you know, ship up or what is that? Shape up or ship out. This is how it is. That kid's going to be really pissed off. What do you mean? What do you mean I got a curfew, right? Because those new limitations feel really uncomfortable. It's going to feel uncomfortable, Elaine, but you've got a 15-year-old kid in there ruining your life. So how free do you want to be? Do you want to go back and relapse and maybe not ever come back again? Maybe balloon up to 400 pounds and die of an obesity-related condition? Because that is what is awaiting you possibly, very possibly. It happens. But even if that doesn't happen to you, Elaine, I'm assuming you don't want to go back to the hellish life you were in or you wouldn't be on this meeting. So I would recommend that you get, you know, go get yourself a hard ass as a sponsor. Get someone who's very direct, who's not going to take any of your bullshit, who's going to confront your dishonest thinking and help you to come out of a way of life that's been holding you in bondage. So that would be my answer to that. Thank you, Elaine, for your question. Good luck to you. Anyone else this morning? Star one to unmute. Hi, I'm Linda. This is Bella. I'm Brooklyn. I believe I heard. Good morning, Bella. I believe Linda. I heard Linda first. Is that correct? Yes. yes. Linda and then Bella. Go ahead. Hi. Good morning. My name is Linda. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater and very grateful to be on this meeting this morning. And thank you so much for your qualification. I really related and I really enjoyed it. My question is, um, how do you handle sponsees or protégés that um, are having food difficulties? Um, what do you do? Do you continue working with them long term? I mean, I know you, we work a tough program here. You know, at times I'm really tough. However, what happens, what, how are you with the, um, the, the issue of uh, perfectionism and um, and forgiveness when it comes to working with newcomers that are having very difficult times with food through the process. Thank you. Okay. Well, thank you for your question. Um, and I first have to say, I, I apologize for using the swear word a couple minutes ago. I, I get very passionate and sometimes I, I go a little far with my language. Um, so you're asking about food difficulties and perfectionism. Um, I know that I have to be 100% abstinent all the time because that's what my condition requires. If I want to be recovered, that's required of me. Now, that has nothing to do with this word called perfectionism. The word perfect and perfectionism, in my view, have no place in recovery. None. Zero. Absolutely none whatsoever. Because what I really think is happening when we use the word perfect and perfectionism, what we're really talking about is rigidity. And rigidity has nothing to do with the program of recovery. What does have to do with the program of recovery is structure, discipline, routine, consistency, accountability, transparency, honesty, and those are qualities we can practice. When I am making an arrangement to work with a sponsee and I say, call me at 7 a.m., She's perfectly capable of calling me at 7 a.m. That's not perfectionism. That's being on time. You know, when, when she has consulted with her nutritionist or doctor about her food plan, and then she runs it by me and I say, gosh, you know, your nutritionist is saying that you can have sugar a couple times a week, you know, 
sugar is not something that we do. You know, we're, we, we have an allergy to that. So you need to let that go off of your food plan. That's about being abstinent. That's not about being perfect. So let's make clear the distinction between working the program in all of its fullness and this false idea of perfectionism. Does that answer your question? Linda, you are muted. Star one to unmute us. Well, perhaps she's having some technical difficulties. Thank you, Joe, for the response. Let's go to Bella for her question, please. Hello, this is Bella. Yes, go ahead, Bella. Okay, I have a question. Um, I'm wondering if there is degrees of being compulsive overeater, like mild, moderate, and severe, or once you're compulsive overeater, you're compulsive overeater, and it doesn't matter, because... um, I was never obese. I was like 40 pounds, maybe 45 pounds overweight, and I kept fluctuating, and I kept going back and losing it and gaining it. And I had a hard time accepting myself as a compulsive overeater because I didn't relate with some of the stories about eating from a garbage can or getting up in the middle of the night and going out to get a binge food. But I still feel that I'm a compulsive overeater because I couldn't stay away from certain foods not that I had to eat tons of it, but I would have this craving and I had to satisfy it. And then I would start gaining and I couldn't stop. So I'm just wondering if it does, does it matter how mild or moderate or severe it is or once compulsive, you're compulsive. Thank you. Well, Bella, to me, the question is, which pain are you in? How unhappy are you? Uh-huh. Uh, you know, your how what your lack of freedom and how badly do you want out of that that's the only question it doesn't matter what your weight is when you come into the rooms of OA it has zero effect none you could be 500 pounds or you could have you could be someone who's never had any excess weight that that's in, in some ways that's an external I mean that's the that's you know, someone could come into the rooms being a normal weighted, but they're absolutely miserable because they've been purging their way through. They don't gain weight because they're vomiting all the food out so it never becomes fat on their body. But they're in so much pain because of their powerlessness over their condition. You do not have to compare yourself to anybody in the rooms. All you need to do is look inside yourself and know how much pain you're in because you have your own pain, Bella. It's not anybody else's pain. It's yours. It belongs to you. And you have the right to be free of that pain. And this program will free you of it if you give yourself over to this program. That would be my answer to that. Thank you. Joe for the response and Bella for the question. 
that's a common question here in the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous. Any other questions this morning? Star one yes, to Leah, this is Lisa in California. I have a question for Joe. Of course, go ahead. Go ahead, Lisa. Um, Joe, how would you address some compulsive overeaters' um, concurrent mental illness diagnosis with their psychiatric medications that uh, cause weight gain and the confusion about that? I consider those to be outside issues. So if I have a sponsee who, you know, needs psychiatric help and she's getting that help, that's between her and her medical professional. If she's on a medication that perhaps slows her metabolism down in a way that affects her weight, then I would suggest that she consult with her nutritionist because if you're on a medication that slows your metabolism down and you don't need as much food, then that becomes an issue of what is your abstinence. Um, I do not believe that there are people walking around with 50 extra pounds on them because they're on medication. I do not believe that. And compulsive overeaters, I mean, we're very dishonest. That's part of our makeup. And we don't want to think that we've got to give up certain foods or certain amounts of foods. And we're very good at latching on to these other excuses for not getting abstinent. So the, the practice of honesty is very important. Let's not hide behind medication and say, I'm 50 pounds overweight because of medication. Now, I'm not a medical expert, and I, I don't know the physiology of how this medication leads to weight gain. I just know that compulsive overeaters have a hard time getting fully and thoroughly honest with what we're doing with food. So when I'm working with a sponsee, she commits all of her food to me before we do anything else every day, and I commit my food to my sponsor. You know, we, we've got to be honest about what we're doing with our food. So I do not agree to a sponsee saying, well, I'm going to really just stay fat because I'm on this medication. I don't let that slide. Does that answer your question? Lisa, press star one to unmute. Um, Joe, my question was more about the dual diagnosis of a true mental illness and the mental obsession and how you can uh, balance those out where you're treating one kind of insanity and at the same time you're treating another kind of insanity. Do you have to have a sponsor that's familiar with the mental illnesses that you have? Oh, got it. Okay. Um, thank you for the clarification, Lisa. Um, no, because I'm not treating two different things. I'm, I, I'm not treating anything. The, program's gonna, the program is going to address the mental obsession for food through a spiritual awakening. That's what this program is about. That's my job as a sponsor is to help someone 
uh, work through the steps as laid out in the big book so they can have that experience. They can have the spiritual awakening, which will then alleviate that mental obsession. If they're in treatment for a mental illness, I don't have to deal with that. I mean, in some ways, it's none of my business. I'm not doing two different things with a sponsee. I'm only doing one. So when you come to the table, if you're being treated for a mental illness and you come to the table to me as a sponsee, you know, I'm sponsoring you, you're, you're being sponsored by me, we don't really have to discuss the other things that you're doing. And there is no such thing as balance in my view. I'm not, to me, it's first things first. It's recovery first, and everything else comes underneath that. And I say that as someone who's been in quite a lot of therapy myself. Um, I have had some very severe psychological conditions that I have had to address with outside help, and I've been very grateful for that. But I don't have to talk to my sponsor about that. I mean, I might mention to her, yeah, I'm going to go see my counselor tonight. I might mention it, but, but, you know, to spend time in a sponsor-sponsee call on that stuff, I think is a distraction. I am not here. Well, I'll just, I'll just stop there. Does that answer your question, Lisa? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Thank you, Lisa. Anyone else? Rose? Rose, good morning to you. Go ahead. Good morning, Leah. Um, good morning, Joe. Thank you um, for your qualification. Um, especially, I was very grateful for the uh, in-depth um, uh, sharing you did about lying and hiding. I felt like you were inside my skin <clears throat> talking about my own life as an active compulsive overeater. Um, the question I do have, I am a newly recovered compulsive overeater thanks to god and um and i um i uh the things you talked about with um step 9 the change that took place for you um that is happening to me also and i am beginning to um take women through the steps the way i was brought through them myself so my question is this <clears throat> the difference between um Having having the wisdom to know the uh, difference between compassion and brutal honesty, um, you know that that abuse, that self abuse for years of being a uh, bad person, you know, not having the knowledge of being a person with a disease who needed to get well and not get good. But what I like to know is when you're working with um, women yourself on the steps. Um, and you know there may not be a way uh, uh there may not be particular words for it but i really am searching for this here to know uh it's the difference between mercy and justice you know when am i to be compassionate and understanding with a person versus the brutal honesty that is really required which is what i received from my sponsor that got me to where i am now mm-hmm. so is the, is the question clear enough for you to be able to respond to it? Yes, I think I understand what you're asking, Rose. Um, and I guess I would I would um, differentiate between those based on if the sponsee is living up to the arrangement that we've made. 
the way that I sponsor is I sponsor, I sponsor people daily. So they call me every day at a certain time. And they give away their food. And part of the arrangement is that they got to be really clean with their food. And we, we'll have conversations about what is a clean food plan for that person, and they go see a professional. And so there's a lot of you know, safety and accountability around that. And um, they do a reading and writing out of their recovery literature, out of the AA literature, and they read that. So if they're calling me on time, they've got their food prepared, they read it, you know, they, they read it, um, they do their reading and writing assignment, they're living up to their end of the deal. And I know they're working hard and they're really willing then there's a lot of room for compassion there because they're already doing the work. I think the brutal honesty piece uh, comes in if someone is not living up to their part of the bargain. And brutal, to me, it, it's... I don't really believe in being brutal necessarily. I don't think there's I don't think there's there's a place to be mean to people in this program. I don't think being harsh or abrupt or impatient with someone is really part of my job as a sponsor. And there have been times when I've gotten that way with sponsees and I had to apologize to them for that. because um, to me that's not really what the program is about. Um, so I, I, it's been important for me to practice the thinking that I'm not in charge of a sponsee and I know there's, there's language that we use in the program that I don't really quite experience, identify, um, I'm, for example, I'm not leading someone through the steps. That's not my job. My job when I'm sponsoring is I'm practicing step 12. That's what I'm doing. My sponsee might be on step one. She might be on step three. She might be on step six. But I'm on step 12 when I'm working with her. That's the only step I'm working when I'm working with her is my own step 12. And in doing step 12, I am reflecting back to her, Here, here's what the steps, you know, let's go through the big book, here's what it says to do. Um, and I'm, I'm a guide, really. Really, all I am as a sponsor for her is I'm just a tool in her toolbox. I'm not her higher power. I'm not taking someone through the steps. She's going through the steps of her own volition using me as a guide and a helper. Does that answer your question, Rose? Rose, star one to unmute. Sorry. Uh, Joe, I, I said yes very, very much, and thank you. Thank you for it. Will you be giving your number, your phone number at the end here? Yes, uh-huh. Great. Thank you, Rose. Anyone else this morning? With a question. Uh, yes, Lauren and Sally. Okay, I heard Lauren and Sally. Go ahead, Lauren. Okay, thanks. 
Thank you. Uh, this is Lauren S. Uh, from Pennsylvania, and I, I, I think this goes along with the mental obsession, but if it doesn't, um, I can just talk to you another time, um, and you can pass the question if you want. But I was, I attend, I, I don't identify as a alcoholic. I'm a compulsive overeater, but I also attend AA meetings um, to, to just hear uh, a message that I don't often get in my face-to-face meetings in, in um, OA, and I didn't know if it would be appropriate for me to share in those meetings uh, whenever they're talking about things past step one, um, just addiction in general, but I didn't know if it, was, it would, if it would be appropriate for me to share um, and just identify as an addict. Uh, so. I think you'd have to check that out with the people who go to those meetings, Lauren. Okay. I wouldn't know the answer to that. Okay. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. And Sally? Thank you, Leah. Good morning, Joe. Thank you so much for your share this morning. I got so much out of it. You're welcome. Joe, I've been, I just had my first year of, um, reached a year of abstinence, and more importantly, of course, I um, am recovered and just went through the, uh, the steps with um, a sponsor and um, completed those uh, a little while ago, a couple of months ago, although I am working on step 11 at this time with her reading through, you know, slowly. Um, And my question to you is that I just started sponsoring, and um, the person that I just started sponsoring, uh, the day that we spoke and agreed that we would get started, she went out and had an all-out binge. And so when I spoke with her that evening the uh, designated time to speak with her, and she, um, somewhere in the midst of our conversation, um, I asked her a question, and she told me that she had uh, dinner time, had this full-scale binge. I was a little alarmed, um, and, um, you know, and then agreed that um, she would start day one tomorrow and that we would talk this evening. And um, so my question to you is, although I have been in touch with her texting throughout the weekend and sounds like she's abstinent. My question to you is, um, because I'm new at this as a recovered sponsor, I've been in OA for many years, I've been abstinent for back-to-back for years, none of it really matters as far as I'm concerned because I was never recovered, never understood what I understand now through the big book study that I have um, gone through in this last year and, of course, as a result of being a part of a vision for you in this last year as well. My question is, how do we handle sponsees that are flipping and flopping and, and uh, you know, without wanting to just ditch them and say, oh, well, you're not ready, and then move on to someone else? Um, because there is, of course, a, a very strong part of me that is compassionate, um, knowing what I myself have been through through many years of um, compulsive overeating. So my question is simply, where do we draw the line? And... Um, and how do you handle that when you take on a sponsee who may not be ready and yet may be ready and is frogging around with the food still? Can you can you give some clarity to that? Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you for the question, Sally. Um, I first of all think, I mean, for me, it has to start with an agreement between me and the sponsee what exactly we mean by being abstinent. That there has to be really good clarity about what their food plan is going to be. 
And that way there's no question about whether or not they are abstinent. So that's really important. Um, If someone, okay, so let's say that agreement is in place, and then the next time I talk to them, they've been binging, then we have a basic square one problem, which is that person is not abstinent. And in the non-abstinent state, I can't help them. So it doesn't make, so one of two things has to happen. They need to make a decision that they are willing to become abstinent and use all the resources at their disposal to help them with that. Me, a nutritionist, a dietitian, uh, the meetings that we go to, the structure that we have in place, that they're going to go that path or they're going to stay in binging. And, you know, sometimes people ask for a sponsor and they haven't hit bottom yet. I've seen this happen quite a number of times. And it's understandable that it happens because if you're really in pain over your eating, you go to an OA meeting, it feels like a relief to be there with other compulsive overeaters, you hear about this thing called having a sponsor, and you think maybe the act of getting a sponsor will help you hit bottom. But I have not found that to be the case. I think we have to hit bottom first and then in that defeated place and we're screaming in pain and we're drowning in the river. Only then are we willing to say, I'm drowning, throw me a life preserver. So, and, and I have been one of those sponsors who sometimes people ask me to sponsor them, but they haven't hit bottom yet. Um, and they may go through a number of other sponsors, but they haven't hit bottom yet. And so I'm just, I've just been a stepping stone on the, perhaps, you know, on their way to hitting bottom. And that's totally fine. That's, I mean, I would rather that someone, you know, hit bottom and, and get sober and, <laughs> and work the steps because that's what I want for everyone. I want everyone who's suffering to have what we have. But that's not going to be the case. So I would recommend that, you know, if this person has not hit bottom, it has nothing to do with you, Sally. You know, she's not going out binging to get back at you in some way. She's binging because she hasn't hit bottom yet. And, you know, and, you, and another thing, you know, you never know. With, with someone who's, um, they come in, they come into the rooms, and maybe they struggle, and they're in and out of abstinence, maybe they leave for a while, you never know who you're going to see back at a meeting, newly defeated, grabbing on, you know, they get abstinent, they're working the steps, their lives are and I've seen that happen. I've, you know, I've seen that happen. So you, you, we, can, we never know who it is who is going to ultimately grab onto what we have. Um, so that would be my answer, Sally. Thank you, Sally, for the question. Anyone else this morning? The topic, insanity, obsession of the mind. This is a greater aspect of our disease. Hey, Susan, how are you? Go ahead. Hey, good morning, and thanks so much to both of you Um, and for the great questions. Joe, I loved hearing you last time and this time. And um, so I have a question. I'll, I'll try and keep it general. 
I'll, I'll just start to put it in perspective because there are many on the line who are recovered and there are many who are just beginning and there are many in the middle like me who are abstinent and working the steps but not yet recovered. I'm working my fifth step with my sponsor right now. So I'm not yet recovered is the, the, the short story. And so I asked this question from that perspective. The balance between self-care and service, and I'm not talking about OA service. I'm talking about when someone in our life who we, we love asks, asks something of us, because that's what happens in life. People ask things of us. And, uh, you know, at the 12th step, which I'm not up to, we practice this in all our affairs, but again, I'm not there yet. And sometimes, you know, people ask things that are not going to in any way uh, make us physically unsafe or anything like that. But we're talking about insanity, and my insanity comes up through resentments, as I get to see in my fourth and fifth step. And so I try to be clear before I, res- I take on or something that someone asks, is, is this something that I'm comfortable doing, looking at my motives, as well as is a resentment Joe, start one to unmute. Can you hear me? Yes, Susan. I can. Okay. Susan, I, Susan needs to press star one to unmute. She muted apparently. Hi. Um, so I, I'm not sure where you, you stopped hearing me, but the que- the question is um, the balance between that uh, between self-care and being of service to others who who we care about, finding that balance. And if you could just speak to that, because you speak so clearly on all this stuff. Thanks. Mm-hmm. That's a good question, Susan, because I hear this come up on a fairly regular basis in the fellowship. My experience of service is that it's one thing, which is me having a good motive wanting to help somebody else. And me having a good motive and wanting to or being willing, being willing to help someone else, being, being willing to do something that benefits someone else in some way does not mean that it's going to be comfortable for me to do that. It may be inconvenient for me to do that. It may be inconvenient for me to be of service. Um, there may be a little bit of pressure because maybe I'm under a time crunch. There may be a sacrifice that's required on my part to be of service, but I'm willing to do it because I want to do it. It's important to the other person or it's important to the group. There is some self, there is, for me, my experience of service is that there's always an aspect of self-sacrifice in it. Um, and self-sacrifice meaning just my ego squirms a little bit because I'm living inside of a discipline that I didn't create. Like I'm not calling the shots. I've got to, you know, I'm giving myself over to something else. And there's a little bit of a, of a, of a squeeze in there. There's a little bit of a tension, a um, little bit of my, my ego squirms a little bit, but I'm willing to do it. And, I'm, I'm, and it feels so good when I'm in the service mode and and especially afterward and feeling better afterward that I gave myself in that way 
I think we get distracted and confused when we use a term like self-care. I don't use that term. Um, I don't see self-care as something that I'm supposed to be doing in my recovery. And I don't, I don't use the word balance because to me balance means there's one thing on the left, there's one thing on the right, and they have to balance each other out as if they're both equally important. And my experience of recovery is that recovery is at the very top of my life and everything else comes underneath it, everything. There is nothing that I do think, say, that doesn't affect my recovery one way or the other. So if I want recovery, I've got to put things in place underneath recovery that support my recovery and not detract from it. If someone does an act of, quote, service, that they think it's service, but they're acting out of resentment, that is not being of service. That's, that's being resentful. So if, if your motive is not to be of service and your motive is something else, it's not being of service. If you're doing it because you want someone's approval or you want attention or you want praise, in other words, if you're doing it because you want something out of it or you're trying to be a martyr, that's not being of service. That's not what they mean. You know, in the big book, when they say your job now is to be at the place where you may be of maximum usefulness to God and those about you, what they're talking about is, you know, actions that come from good motives. And the good motives come from, you know, having the spiritual experience and the spiritual awakening. Um, So I think it is hazardous to use language like balancing self-care and service as if recovery has to compete with something. When I was trying to make my recovery compete with something, I lost my recovery. So that was a real wake-up call. Um, I think there is tremendous amount of fear among people in our fellowship that if they start being of service, if they start seeing service as actually really important, somehow they're going to be exhausted being of service. They're going to lose out on something by being of service. And I have found the opposite to be true. I've been energized by being of service. I, um, I've received, I mean, I've received so much inside from being of service. It feels good. I feel, I feel happy. I mean, if you want to use the term self-care, I mean, get into recovery. I mean, that's the best self-care that we can have, I think. Um, there have been times when I have, been, when I have had a request to be of service, and I will say, I'm sorry I'm not able to do that today. You know, maybe, maybe you know, someone's asking me to do something at 8 o'clock at night, for example. Well, that means, you know, so it's going to go to 10 or 11. That's too late. I, I have to have my rest. So in that moment, being of service is being honest about my limitations. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, Susan. That's what I would have to say about that. It was a beautiful, thorough response. You knocked it out of the park. Thank you so much. Glad I asked. Yeah. 
Thank you, Susan. Anyone else this morning on the greater aspect of our disease, the obsession of the mind? Star one to unmute. Hi, this is Doreen. May I share? Yes, go ahead with a question, please. Thank you. Hi, I'm Doreen, and I'm a recovering compulsive overeater from Rhode Island. And thank you, Joe, so much for your um, story. I identified with a lot of it. And uh, it's easier for me to ask a question if I'm asking about the third person, but I'm asking about me. And what recommendations do you have for someone who has been in the room for a lot of years? And I know you said it doesn't matter whether they're coming out of a relapse or they're a brand-new member and ways to help smash that ego and remove the self-knowledge. Um, I, I, is that a... Do you understand the question? Yes. Um, and thank you for the question, Doreen, because I think you're touching on something that is really important, which is, to me it doesn't matter how many years we've been in the rooms. It's really irrelevant. It's almost entirely irrelevant. Um, Because all that does is say, you know, all, all that says is, well, how many years have we been going to meetings? That does not touch on what we actually have to do to be recovered. And what we have to do to be recovered is we've got to give up all of our foods and all of our, you know, problem behaviors, et cetera, with food. We have to be abstinent, and we have to do the steps, the big book method, and have a spiritual awakening. That's what we have to do. If we start thinking that part of recovery is racking up chronological time going to meetings, we are not going to be recovered. And I always, I mean, I, it's a flag, it's a red flag to me um, when I, I didn't hear, I didn't hear you say this, you're asking an honest question, but I heard others over the years say things like, you know, I've been around, I've been around away for 25 years as if somehow that qualifies them to say anything about the program of recovery. I mean, quite honestly, I've seen people swirl around in the fellowship for a number of years and have zero recovery. And I've seen someone come back to their second meeting after six days of abstinence and they are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and they've got hope in their eyes and it's inspiring to see them. And I'd much rather hear from the person who has six days of sobriety than someone who's been around the rooms for 25 years with none. So, again, I mean, I'm a real fan of simplicity because that's how I've got recovered is by accepting the simplicity of the program. It's two things. Be absent, work the steps. And then the meetings are a place where I'm confirming the fact that I've accepted who I am and I'm going there to be reminded who I am. And I'm also bringing the message of recovery to those meetings. So I'm not going to meetings as a substitute for all this other stuff that I got to do. Does that answer your question, Doreen? Um, Yes, it does very much. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you, Doreen. Anyone else with a question this morning? Topic is the greater aspect of our disease, the obsession of the mind.
star one to unmute. Hello? Yes. Hi, my name is Anne. Um, this isn't on topic, but um, she said something earlier about a vision for you. I've never heard of that. And also, um, well, there's not, where I live, there's not a lot of sponsors at the OA meetings. And there's maybe a couple that are already spent. They already have too many. Um, so I was wondering, would it be good to find um sponsor at the AA meetings? And also, I know there's like three questions here, but does the big book meetings have to be OA? It's, I don't have a lot of OA meetings where I live. Thank you. Well, Anne, I would recommend that you check out as many possibilities as you have available. So it sounds like you've checked out the options in your area, and there aren't a lot. You know, you could try going to the Vision for You meeting. I mean, and Leah, you can weigh in on this because um, uh, I I don't want to be speaking for I don't want to be speaking for a Vision for You. So maybe Leah, you can address that. Thank you, Joe. Good morning and welcome to you, Anne. Uh, yes, you know, certainly we encourage you to. Investigate what's in your area. If there's any local OA meetings that are big book focused that have members who are recovered, who are ex-problem compulsive overeaters, if those are not available, then perhaps you'd like to visit some open AA meetings. There are uh, usually many, many choices of AA meetings in every city and town. You can go on your website, on on your Internet, and look up uh, AA in your city, and uh, I'm sure there will be plentiful, you know, number of choices there. Um, A Vision for You meets Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. We welcome you if this is your first meeting. It is dedicated to the study and discussion and teaching of the program of recovery that's contained in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. We refer to it as the big book. The program of recovery is contained in the first 164 pages, and it's studied and discussed on this line Monday through Friday. And, of course, on Sundays we have special editions where we highlight specific steps or topics. This morning we are talking about the greater aspect of the disease, which is the obsession of the mind. That would be my suggestion. Uh, Please join us tomorrow morning. That's Monday at 7 a.m. And there will be an opportunity then to uh, introduce yourself on a a line with uh, many, many people. And you can do so after this meeting as well. So we welcome you. Anyone else this morning with a question regarding the obsession of the mind, insanity, the greater aspect of our disease? Hi, Joe. This is Eileen from Massachusetts. I have a question. Hi, Eileen. Hello. Um, I'm just curious what your take is on this, because you talked a lot about 
the obsession uh, being in you as a very young kid and uh, the weight coming on. And um, see, for me, I had the obsession there, but I didn't have the weight coming on until like my 20s, until like I got into college. And then things started to wane. I got the mental obsession and inject, but then the disease just progressed. It took off. My heaviest weight was 215. So it took me 18 years to get recovery, to get willing to surrender the, the sugar and the flour. So do you think that for someone who has not had the mental obsession and, and the physical obsession as well as a youngster, having it take longer for, for me to get recovery? Do you understand what I'm asking? Yeah. Um, well, I think we come into the rooms when our pain is so bad we can't stand it anymore. And for some people, that takes decades for it to get that bad. Right. And for other people, you know, maybe they have a shorter chronological time that they're eating fast and furious, and they hit their bottom sooner in a chronological sense than someone else. I don't really think it matters. I think what matters is if you're in enough pain that you're coming to Overeaters Anonymous, that's enough. And if you want freedom from that pain, you can have it. Thank you for the question. Anyone else this morning? Uh, good morning. I have a question, please. This is Lonnie. Uh, my name Lonnie, is your Tessa. second. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Your name is first person. My name is Tessa. Go right ahead. Thank you. Um, I have a question about, I guess, compulsive behavior. I, I'm very new to the program. I've been um, not drinking alcohol or eating sweets for about two months, but I've noticed everything has transferred to gum and sugar-free drinks to the point where it's becoming um, a problem. Do you have any input or advice on, on if that should be included in your food plan? Well, I think the first question ever, Tessa, is whether or not you're free. So if if whatever you're doing with food or food item or sugar-free drinks or gum or whatever is preventing you from feeling free, then it's a problem. Um, the experience that you're having is pretty common. Um, to give up uh, a major food like sugar and then, you know, the addict in you wants to find a substitute for that by going for gum or sugar-free drinks. Now you've turned your compulsion onto these other food items. And sometimes uh, people will need to commit, you know, the number of pieces of gum they're going to have that day, and sometimes that works for them, or the number of sugar-free drinks they're going to have that day. They find that when they put boundaries around it in that way and they commit it to their sponsor, they can do those things. And other times, 
those things have become such a problem that they actually have to go off someone's food plan. So I would recommend that you talk to your sponsor about that. The main thing, though, Tessa, is you are seeking, I'm assuming, freedom in your head. So this is not about technical rules that you're supposed to be following. It's about your freedom. It's about Tessa, and I hope I got your name right. Is it Tessa, T-E-S-S-A? Tessa, star one to unmute. Yes, it's Tessa. Tessa, okay. Um, This is about your freedom. It's about Tessa's freedom. It's not about anybody else's freedom. It's not about food plans that other people follow. It's about the food plan that Tessa needs to follow so Tessa can be free. This is not about you obeying external authority. It's about you paying attention to the bondage that you feel. You know, when, when you're having to chew all that gum all the time or when you have to drink all the sugar-free drinks, that that diminishes Tessa's quality of life. Because now, instead of Tessa focusing on things that are meaningful and purposeful to her and to others, she's focusing on when she's going to get her gum that day. I mean, that's really lowering the quality of life for you internally. Is the way I see it. So I would really encourage you to talk about this with your sponsor. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you, Tessa. Another example of how the disease finds new ways to uh, talk. And now we move on to Lonnie, please. Hi, this is Lonnie. Um, Thank you for your share today. I just more and more realize the insanity in my mind and my obsession around food, even when I've been abstinent. And unfortunately, I have not been abstinent in the last couple of weeks. And I'm, I'm so on the verge. I feel like I'm teetering. And I think my biggest fear is all along has been just completely surrendering and giving up my illusion of control. Um, And I realized that even the times and for long periods of abstinence and working this program that I never lived in 10, 11, and 12. And I was just wondering if you have any advice for that complete surrender and giving up control, and I guess it all comes down to faith. You know, faith that God's got my back, and and I know I don't have control anyway. That it's a illusion or delusion. And wondering if you could speak to that. Yeah, well, thank you for the question, Connie. Um, the first layer of um, giving up the illusion of control is um, giving up the illusion of control over food, and. Because compulsive overeaters, I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're powerless and helpless in the face of the food. And we, we need help in getting abstinent. Um, we're just not able, and it's, it's not our fault that we're not able to construct a sustainable food plan. 
that keeps us in that sober state. We're just unable to. We're powerless. So, you know, I recommend that you get a recovered sponsor, someone who is fully sober, to help you get a plan together that gives you a sober plan of eating. That's the very first thing that you need, Connie. Um, When we're in the food, our thinking is so distorted. We don't even know how distorted our thinking is until we start getting free of it. But our thinking is very twisted. And we don't have a chance at having that thinking cleared up unless we first get physically sober. We get physically abstinent with the food. So that's the first thing that I would recommend that you do. Um, And then I would remind you that the steps, you know, wonderfully so, are given to us in order so that, you know, we go through them one at a time in a particular way. So you don't have to worry about steps 10, 11, and 12 right now, Connie, because you're not there yet. You're really at the point at which you're going to be taking step one. And then once you take step one, um, you'll be in a position, you know, step one. I mean, what does it say? We're powerless. So how does that manifest itself in, in our recovery? Well, if I know that I'm powerless, then I accept that I really can't decide my own food plan. So I get a sponsor to help me with that. Maybe I go to a nutritionist. You know, maybe I have a medical professional help out with that. But together with other people who can help me, I get an abstinent food plan. And I admit that I can't handle anything about the program on my own. You know, that powerlessness, I need a sponsor. I need to go to the meetings. I need the sober food plan. Um, I can't, this whole, the whole problem, all, you know, however long I've had it, I can't handle it on my own. I'm, I've given up the, I'm giving up the illusion of thinking that I have to write my own program of recovery. For some of us, you know, for some of us who, and I include myself in that, who've tried to write our own plan of recovery, you know, step one is giving that up, giving up that illusion. So I admit that I'm powerless. Okay, well, now what am I going to do? Okay, I have an absolute food plan. I admit that I can't handle this. I've got a sponsor. I'm going to my meetings. I'm powerless. I'm powerless. I'm powerless. Well, I have to have some power greater than me if I'm going to find a way to live uh, with sanity. Okay, so I make that leap. It's it's not it's not maybe it's not you know a thunderbolt of lightning, but I believe that there is something better on the other side for me. So I do that. Okay, then I'm going to make a decision that I'm actually going to use that power to go forward. I'm not sure what's coming next, but I've decided that whatever this feeling is, this hope, maybe it's just the hope that I have that I see in other people, that I'm going to uh, give myself over to that power and I'm going to follow what comes next. You know, step three, I've heard step three described as making a decision to do steps four through nine. So if you want to use step three that way, that's a fabulous way to to use step three. Okay, so you make that decision. Now you're going to do this inventory. 
And the inventory is only going to be an inventory if you've done steps one, two, and three. You can't do a four-step unless you've done steps one, two, and three. You do the four-step thoroughly. You give it away. That's step five. You look at the patterns that came up in that fourth and fifth step, in, in your fourth step. What are the patterns that have come up? You, you become conscious of those things. You become willing to have them removed. You're not going to remove them. They're going to be removed for you. All you have to do is the footwork. Yes, you're willing to do that. Yes, you ask them to be removed. You're willing. Okay, you're willing. Now, now we're going to go forward. Now I see the harms that I've done. When I did that four-step, oh, that's all the behavior that I did to somebody else out of my own effort to, to run my life on self-will. And so I really see my part because I've done steps one through seven. I can see my part now in step eight. Now I can really see those are, real, those are genuine harms that I did. I really am, oh, now I can own that. And in owning that, I can clean it up. Now I go, now how am I going to clean it up? Well, there's instructions. Step nine. I get to go clean up all the messes that I made trying to live on self-will. So then I go clean up, clean up that mess, and in cleaning up that mess, I become unblocked from those burdens and those frustrations, fears, resentments, and now I am beginning to experience that personality change. Now step 10 is just clean up things as I go along, any new resentments or fears, and then I go into step 11. Well, this power that has restored me to sanity through this whole process i got to keep being in touch with that power. How am I going to do that? Well, step 11. Okay, well, now, keep being in touch with the power. Well, now what do I do? Well, you take that energy, and then you move into step 12, which is carrying the message and then practicing these principles in all of our affairs. I kind of liken step 11 to a gas station. Oh, I'm going to go to the gas station. I got my gas filled up. Great. I got my gas filled up. Hey, isn't that great? I got my gas filled up. Hey, my gas, my, my tank is full of gas. Isn't that fantastic? It's premium gas. Look at the gas. Hey, isn't that great? And pretty soon it's like, hey, Joe, well, when are you going to leave the gas station and go somewhere? So to me, that's step 12. I'm going to take the gas that I got in my car, and now I'm going to go somewhere. So I'm kind of quickly running you through the whole process, Connie, and telling you that you are not in a position to look at steps 10 or 11 or 12 because you haven't done step one yet. So all you need to do, well, I shouldn't say all. I mean, it's a big thing, but it's simple. You're at the, you're at the cusp. You're at the jumping off. I guess what I would say, Connie, it sounds like you're at the jumping off place. They talk about this in the big book. We're at the jumping off place. You know, I can't imagine myself continuing to overeat but I'm a little bit nervous of what's over on the other side, but I can see that what's over on the other side is better than what I've got. Am I going to make the leap? So I recommend you get a recovered sponsor, Connie, and admit step one. That'd be my answer to that. Thank you, Joe, for that thorough response, and Connie for the question. Anyone else this morning before we wrap up today's meeting. Any questions related to obsession of the mind, insanity, delusion, illusion, the greater aspect of our disease? Would Joe Leah? Leah? Yes. Yes. Mary Lou. Mary Lou. Mary Lou, go ahead. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Um, uh, Joe, thank you so much for your share. I wanted to ask, address uh, Step 11 and meditation and how you use that um, to help in your recovery of the obsession of the mind. How has that looked for you on a daily basis, just step 11 practice? Yeah, that is, uh, honestly, I mean, 
I am constantly engaging step 11. It's, it's really, it's, it's all day long. I am constantly engaging it. I mean, just, um, I am constantly having to measure myself against what I need to be doing that day, how I need to be thinking that day. Um, how does my day need to be structured so that I can be out in the world in a way that's effective, in a way that reflects that I'm in recovery? Um, I have to do a lot of very specific actions to reflect step 11. Um, I mean, I'll just give you an example. The other day, um, it was early in the morning, and um, it was my dad's wife's birthday. And I said, remember to call Shannon and wish her a happy birthday. So I had to pause and call her and wish her a happy birthday. I got her voicemail. She's, she rarely picks up, but I can usually I leave her a voicemail. Left her a voicemail, you know, wishing you a happy birthday. I hope it's a good day for you. Um, thinking about you today, you know, pausing and doing the, the action of service. Uh, this morning, pausing and saying, i got to get my cats outside before I call into a vision for you because I want them having their outside life, the fresh air. It's a beautiful day. If I wait until after a vision for you is over, that's maybe an hour and a half or maybe a couple of hours of outside time that they're not getting. I want them to have that. So I had to hustle to get them outside. To get them outside. Um, remembering to do things like, um, like yesterday, Saturday, I had an earlier uh, day than I normally do, and I needed to be at a location um, by about 8.30 or 9 in the morning. So I had to back way up and say, okay, I need to be there. I need to show up because I've made a commitment to this group that I'm going to be there and participate. So, okay, so what do I have to do? I've got to leave my alarm set at 6 a.m. Now, normally on the weekends I can set it for a little bit later. Okay, I left it, left, leave my alarm to go off at 6 a.m. Okay, I've got my lunch ready for the night. I've got this. What is this? What, I'm kind of checking with the particulars that I need to have in place so that I can be at my commitment and be of service there. So I'm often kind of backtracking, kind of looking at, okay, I'm, I need to be at a certain place mentally or physically somewhere, so what do I have to do to get myself ready for that? Um, so that's that's step 11 for me it's it's just it's constant it's all the time it is it's reviewing my behavior it's um it's checking it's checking it's not like i'm checking myself i'm allowing a power greater than myself to have an influence over me um trying to think of an example where i had to kind of backtrack and correct you know i had a sponsor say, she says you know we monitor and correct and that's what I do. I monitor and correct. Sometimes I have to correct my my words or my actions, um, or I have to uh, have I have, take a follow up action because I, you know, maybe forgot to do something that I said I was going to do for someone. Um, I find step eleven uh, to be a very act. I'm very active. It's a it's almost an action step for me. Um, 
What does Step 11 say? Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of God's will for us and the power to carry that out. Um, the power to carry that out. You know, for me, just for Step 11 to be meaningful, I need to take the results of the prayer and meditation and bring it out into the world. Um, but I have to say, Step 11 has meaning because I've done the first 10 steps. Sometimes people will talk about prayer and meditation when they're not there yet. You know, prayer and meditation, that's step 11. If you're not at step 11, you don't have to worry about prayer and meditation. There yet. Maybe you're on step four. Maybe you're on step two. Maybe you haven't admitted step one yet. So the, the term prayer and meditation, the word prayer and meditate, I mean, those words get used, especially the word prayer, it gets used a lot in the fellowship. But I think it's important to know if you're there yet or not, because if you're not there yet, you don't have to worry about it. Don't burden yourself with thinking that you're supposed to be in prayer and meditation when you're at an earlier phase in your recovery. That'd be my answer to that. Okay, thank you. Thank you for the question, and Joe, again, thank you for your thorough response, and thank you for your presentation this morning on the greater aspect of our disease. Of course, it's vital that we understand that this is the crux of the problem. That way, we will have the urgency and necessity that's necessary in order to implement the steps. Thank you to all the for all the questions this morning. Again, Joe, thank you for your time. I'm going to close the meeting now with the reading from A Vision for You from page 164, the way A Vision for You always closes its meetings, and it goes as follows. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your, fa- your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.